0: Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 98, Surface Chemistry, in which I talk something about, well, surface chemistry as practiced in the early 1990s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast, supporters of this podcast may download a supplemental sheet with diagrams of many topics I mention in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Our last episode was focused more on using the scanning tunneling microscope to move atoms around on surfaces. But there were many research groups doing surface chemistry without these newfangled probes. In fact, I was in one of those groups at Rice University doing my graduate studies for my PhD in chemistry at that time. So, the last episode segues nicely into this episode for discussion of real live surface chemistry as I was doing it circa 1990. The topic will be my actual doctoral dissertation condensed into a single podcast episode. Our team was interested in group 4 elements and the chemistry one can do on their surfaces. Group 4 in the periodic table is really a column toward the right. The top element is carbon, below that is silicon, below that is germanium, and below that is tin. As you move from top to bottom, the elements go from a mostly non-metal to more and more metallic. We've mentioned this in past episodes, but even the lowest one I mentioned in the group 4 column, tin, has a bit of non-metallic character. Recall tin pest, the semi-metallic powder tin converts to in cold weather. We care about group 4 elements because they are so common. Ranging from organic compounds, to diamonds, to computer chips, to metal cans and tins, they are everywhere in our civilization. But in the 1980s and 1990s, the focus was on synthesizing diamond, which we discussed, plus making cool new electronic gizmos from these elements, and that was the reason for our research. Other people in my research group were looking at diamond's surface chemistry, but my focus was on germanium, the element from which the first transistors were fabricated, and its surface chemistry. So, let's get into my research. Carbon in the form of diamond, silicon, germanium, and the cold allotrope of tin all have the so-called diamond crystal structure. Each atom is connected to four other atoms, and the atom's bonds stick out from each atom in a tetrahedral shape. This gives the crystals a generally very high strength. We also know that these elements generally have a valence of 4. Now, we can slice any of these crystals in certain directions, especially the 100 and 111 surfaces, and these are the surfaces of silicon upon which integrated circuits are made, so my research was focused on the 100 surface. In our mind, we can imagine slicing through a germanium crystal and getting a 100 surface. On this surface, each atom in the topmost layer is connected to two underlying atoms. There are two singly filled, not complete electron orbitals on each surface atom, and these are called dangling bonds. As you might imagine, these dangling bonds are very reactive. Just waiting for other electrons to stop by to pair with. So, in reality, these bonds are unstable and they do react spontaneously. We mentioned this type of activity already the spontaneous rearrangement of surface dangling bonds and atoms called reconstruction. In germanium, the two nearest atoms move toward each other and one dangling unfilled orbital on each atom can interact with the other pairing up electrons to form a bond on the surface we call this the reconstructed 100 surface and it was discovered by re schlier and harrison farnsworth at brown university in rhode island usa back in 1957 by diffracting low energy electrons across the surface the reconstructed surface is more stable than unreconstructed, but each germanium atom still has a single unpaired electron orbital sticking out of the surface, ready to do chemistry. In essence, the germanium surface might be thought of as a flat array of radicals. How reactive that single electron orbital might be depends also on the bonds between the pairs of germanium atoms at the surface. You may want to break those dimer bonds to help make new surface bonds. But the bonds between the dimers were not well understood at the time of my research, and that was my research topic. How did the dimers react with molecules falling out of the sky onto them? The chemistry itself... Required placing known quantities of small hydrogen containing molecules, such as water, H2O, hydrogen sulfide, H2S, or ammonia, NH3, onto the surface. How did I do this? First, Our group designed a stainless steel cylinder, which the Rice University machine shop in the Space Science Building's basement fabricated. This was our ultra-high vacuum chamber, and with a lot of tedious work, we could bring the air pressure down to 10 to the minus 13 atmospheres, so that it takes about one hour for a single layer of molecules to coat a surface we included various special ports on the chamber to which we could attach gas inlets and viewing windows and ways to manipulate and heat the sample inside. Almost every part had to be metal because most polymers give off solvents in vacuum. To clean everything, including the sample inside, you wipe the surfaces with acetone to remove the oily grime, Then you bake it all for maybe a day, so that all the rest of the crud and adsorbed molecules fly off. The chamber had electrical heating tapes wrapped around all parts. But the sample itself was heated in a most interesting way. Remember that germanium is a semiconductor. Therefore, you can force enough electricity through the sample itself and heat it up, just like an incandescent wire inside an old-fashioned light bulb. Once it is glowing red, you pretty much know nothing is going to stick to the surface. All the covalent bonds are broken, and the molecules on the surface have evaporated off. The sample itself was a carefully cut square, about 14 millimeters on a side, out of a thin, special high-purity germanium disk, whose purpose is to make electronic components. The disc was sliced along the 100 crystal face, so we knew what surface structure it ought to have. Germanium is a gray material, kind of silvery, but you can polish it to a mirror finish. It is also fragile in a brittle way, so if you stress it or drop it, it fractures like a piece of porcelain. By the way, the disc wasn't cut exactly on the crystal face. It was cut at about 5 degrees away from the face, which leads to surface reconstruction of the atoms with dimer pairs all in the same orientation between the atomic steps. Complicated, but it works. At the time of my research, it was known that certain molecules break apart on the surface of germanium and silicon-100 crystal faces, and stick there. Molecules like water, halogens like chlorine and bromine, which have two atoms per molecule, and ammonia all seem to break into two parts, which we can guess are H plus OH for water, single chlorine or bromine atoms, or H plus H2N for ammonia. When the sample cooled down after baking, we then let in a known amount of gas through a special custom-designed nozzle to spray on the clean surface. We published a paper about our custom nozzle in a technical journal, by the way. After the molecules are sprayed into the chamber, the molecules do whatever chemistry they do, and then we test the surface. Our way to get a good idea of what was happening on the germanium surface after coating it with some hydrogen-bearing small molecule, was to heat it again, but in a slow, controlled manner, and see what molecules came off. I mentioned this in a previous episode and called it thermal desorption. Because we carefully controlled the rate of heating and monitored the temperature, our version was temperature-programmed desorption. Detection of whatever came off was using a mass spectrometer, so we could see different masses of molecules leave the surface at different temperatures. There is a mathematical relationship between the surface temperature where the molecule leaves and the strength of the bond it has to the surface germanium atoms underneath. Therefore, we could calculate the bond strengths for the different molecules leaving the surface. The molecules I tested were water, H2O, hydrogen sulfide, H2S, ammonia, NH3, hydrogen chloride, HCl, and hydrogen bromide, HBr. There was serious talk in our laboratory of adding arsine, ASH3, and phosphine, pH3, to the list, but that never happened. Though I did build a safety system for detection of leaks, because arsine and phosphine are dangerous enough that I like to say, if you smell them, you're dead. Phosphine in particular has a nasty smell like garlic or rotten fish. Or so I read, because thankfully we never did use arsine or phosphine. So, what did I find? We compared the reconstructed germanium surface with pairs of germanium atoms moving together to known molecular analogs, specifically, disiline molecules and digermine molecules. These are compounds with a structure like the organic compound ethylene, with an alleged double bond between two silicon or two germanium atoms. They were relatively new compounds only known since the early 1980s. As you go down the periodic table's group 4 column, the amount of true double bonding falls. An ethylene molecule with two carbons has a double bond character of about 2. A disilene molecule has a double bond that's really about 1 and 3⁄4 and a digermine bond is closer to 1.6. In fact, these latter two molecules aren't even linear. Their extra atoms hanging off the ends of each silicon or germanium are bent downward, very similar to the structure you imagine for a reconstructed surface. Therefore, we speculated that an entire array of surface-reconstructed Germanium paired atoms was not a single bond plus a dangling bond. Rather, we said it was more prudent to consider the surface atoms as more, or mostly less, like double bonded germanium atoms, with a bit of orbital perhaps sticking up. This idea of comparing means we invoke a theoretical model. We know that the molecule isn't exactly like a surface, it's just a molecule, but some aspects are similar enough that presumably we can draw some kind of analogy based on the properties we care about. In this case, we focus on the double bond itself. We can also compare the chemistry of known disiline and digermine molecules to the chemistry I found at a germanium surface. We know that these double bonds, specifically the pi bonds, are weak in these molecules. We also know that you can add molecules across the double bonds of these molecules. Therefore, we claimed that dropping a molecule onto a pair of germanium surface atoms is very like doing a molecular addition reaction. We used thermochemical data to support our conclusions. That is, we used the heats of reaction to show our model for chemistry is reasonable. What we couldn't precisely test was the exact structure of the molecules after they stuck to the germanium surface. Our goal was to use infrared spectroscopy to check because the vibrational frequencies would be quite characteristic. But that goal never materialized. Along the way, I was involved with building the equipment required to do this work. We had a benchtop computer-controlled Fourier transform infrared spectrometer, newly available because of the microcomputer age that recently began. But we weren't testing the cross-section of the germanium crystal. We only wanted to view the surface of the crystal, not its innards, And that required the property of total internal reflection, just like fiber-optic cables do. The equipment needed to be exquisitely aligned to be sure of an infrared signal at the detector. But you also had to heat your sample to clean the sample. You heat something up, it expands. We tried a long, narrow sample. But being able to control its temperature via electrical heating, plus letting it cool back down into exactly the same geometry without warping any parts, seemed to be impossible. The system never really worked properly. We did include a low-energy electron diffraction apparatus on our vacuum chamber, which also was difficult to get aligned exactly right. So there were a host of difficulties with our setup, and only the thermal desorption part was reliable enough to get data. And that's the way science works or doesn't work always. It can be and was very frustrating and scary for me that the apparatus may not and often did not work. All of these results, plus mathematics, graphs, diagrams of the apparatus, chemical reactions and charts, plus 108 footnotes, I wrote up into a book called a dissertation to summarize what I did for the rest of the world. If you search the Rice University digital dissertations, perhaps you can find mine with the title, Reaction Kinetics and Mechanisms of Inorganic Hydrides on Germanium Surfaces. In order to get a doctorate, the book isn't quite enough. You also have to present your research live in front of a panel of professors of your choice, with approval of your doctoral advisor and anyone else who wants to hear. Often, your fellow graduate students or even curious friends come to such a presentation. You present your work, and the panel may ask you questions about it, such as Why did you use this molecule and not that? or Why didn't you try Experiment X? You have to answer with no coaching from the audience. The presentation and questions usually last about an hour, and then the professors talk privately to decide if you've passed. If the professors agree, and you write it all up in a book, then you can claim to be a PhD. Immediately after my presentation, to calm down from all the stress... I went to see the totally silly and mindless film, Wayne's World. Really. For most chemistry graduate students, there are additional requirements, such as taking some advanced classes. In my case, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, I took classes on quantum mechanics and molecular spectroscopy. I also had a class in high-temperature, high-pressure chemistry, plus a class on organometallic chemistry. A further requirement is to be a teaching assistant in an undergraduate laboratory, typically freshman general chemistry, organic chemistry, or physical chemistry laboratories, assisting students with setting up the equipment and grading their laboratory reports. But the central theme for a doctorate is the research. The entire graduate school process took me nearly six years. The length of time is not fixed for scientific research, and if it works fabulously immediately, maybe you can finish in three or four years. Some people might need seven or eight. So if you encounter someone in graduate school, the absolute worst question you can ask is, when will you finish? That's an entirely unanswerable question because it's the process that's important. You might say that it's one of the last vestiges of the medieval apprentice system still around. Graduate school can be highly stressful, and many don't survive that stress, whether from doing the research or from writing it all down in a book. I saw graduate students who were ABD, all but dissertation, drop out. I saw students leave because they felt that their research wasn't Nobel Prize worthy. A Nobel Prize would be nice, but it's not the point. The point, if you want to be mercenary, is the degree, the diploma. I hope this episode gives you not only an idea of what surface chemistry was like in the early 1990s, but also how higher degrees work in chemistry. In our next episode, I bring you up through the 1990s on the development of LEDs. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.